What you're about to hear is the unbelievable journey of a boy from Holland who survived the horrors of the Holocaust to become a hockey legend. On the ice, he was known as the Flying Dutchman, and no death row or death camp could clip his wings. I was given a life and I will defend it and I will do the best I can with it. And now, as he fights his final battle against a slow and silent killer, David Dickie Gruntman wants you to hear his words in the hope humanity may finally learn from its evil past. Retelling Dickie's story has been a roller coaster of emotions. It's a tale underpinned by one man's determination to survive through the most testing of circumstances. At every hurdle where most would falter or fall, Dickie just kept going, driven by a love for his family and the value he places on life. Some details have been difficult to listen to, I'm sure, but I promise. There is light at the end of this tunnel. Well, let's think about happier times. Australia. You arrive in Australia. We arrived in Australia on the 21st of June 1950. And there was no direct flights from Amsterdam to Sydney uh, in as much they are don't fly at night. We stay overnight on land, so we landed in Darwin on the fifth day. And in the morning, I put my suit on, my tie, polished my shoes, and walked as a well-dressed gentleman to the post office. And when I walked outside, and all these people are sitting there in thongs and T-shirts and tank shirts, and they're all looking at me. So I said, yeah, I'm a bit out of whack here. So I go to the post office, and I send a telegram, dear mum, happy birthday. If Sydney looks like Darwin, I'll be home in two weeks. <laughs> that was such a shock that this is, you can't believe it. <laughs> so I still have to telegram. Anyway, that worked out all right because Sydney didn't look anything like Darwin in those days. But it's, it's, it's a beautiful country and it's, it's a wonderful climate. You can't fault it. It's just we need a bit better government over the years, not to waste it. <laughs> Beautiful country, but you come to a place where it's very hot. But for a man who loved his ice hockey, yeah, you needed an outlet. You needed to play your sport. Yes. What did you do? What I did, the first thing, of course, I went... Can I get up? Yeah. Dickie wanders over to a large cabinet that takes pride of place in the heart of his living room. Packed with trinkets, photos and memorabilia that represent a century worth of memories, he returns with one piece in particular. So, I went to the uh, Sydney Glaciarium and asked for some ice hockey people and I showed them this. And this is a medal from the World Championships in London, March 1950, which is three months before I came here that I played for Holland, you see. Oh, and that introduced me to all the hockey people straight away. And uh, they were very helpful, very nice. But we found it, to put it mildly, 
very primitive. There was very limited ice time. There were no juniors. There was only one team per club, and there was only four clubs. There wasn't enough ice time, and that was a problem. There's a lot of European players that were playing in the other teams, and we applied for a seat in the competition, you said, well, stately. And they said, we have to first play their teams to see if we're strong enough. I said, that's fine. So we played them and we won the first game 7-2. This is a team of the best players in New South Wales. <laughs> so we beat them 7-2, so that was a good entrance. From that on, Bombers were born. And who are the Bombers? Where did the name come from? We wanted a name for the team which is strong and what lives with the people. And all we talked about the last two years from the war is the bombers who, who, who eliminated Germany and bombed there. Terrible. Anyway, I thought it was a strong name and I want a strong team, so we called it the bombers. <laughs> and that team is still around today? Still going today. Migrants whose home nations lay on the other side of the world found common ground at the Sydney Glaciarium. Located on George Street in Ultimo, in the basement of the rink, were large refrigeration works and cooling chambers used as cold stores for local businesses. While up top, on the ice, Dickie would forge lifelong friendships and the foundations of an ice hockey dynasty. Playing ice hockey over here, did it, did it give you that sense of home? Well, yes, it brought something home, yes, for the boys. Like we had Finnish guys and we had all sorts of guys, but all from winter sport countries, you know. We had a couple of Swedish guys, we had uh, Dutch guys, we have Ukrainian, we have, yeah, Polish, special Eastern Europe, a lot of hockey players. At the time, there was a big influx of European immigrants, and a lot of them were hockey players. And they all come eventually to the Glaciarium to see if there's any ice hockey on. And that's how we get them. We start talking, having coffee together and talking. Oh, he came from Czechoslovakia and he came from this very interesting fellas. So that's how we started the Bombers. And the, 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 the first trial game, as I said, we won with 7-2. So we were in. They couldn't refuse us anymore. After that, we won seven years in a row the championships. We used to play at 7 o'clock on Sunday morning, and it was not very successful either, because we were playing in Europe in front of 6,000 people every week. So fortunately, the, the manager of the rink in the Glaciarium, he came from England, and John Carana was the manager of Herringay Arena in London. So he knew ice hockey, and I, said, I told him, John, how come we don't have ice hockey night easier? There's no organizations, there's no, there's nobody does anything, okay. So anyway, I said to him, uh, we have our own team now. What, what is your weakest night? He said, Tuesday night by far. So, okay. Now, give me four Tuesday nights in a row, and I'll put ice hockey on and, and, a, and a figure skating show in between. He said, well, you do that. He said, yes, I'll do that. I'll do that in Holland and all the other countries in Europe doing it. Well, I can't, I can't do that here too if you give me the ice time. So we had all our boys working and the girlfriends making posters, little posters. And we had maybe 500 of them hanging out around the King's Cross in all the cafes and pubs. We hang the things up, you know. So lo and behold, the first Tuesday night come, there's 2,000 people inside the ring. 
and another 2,000 outside. <laughs> I had to call the police <laughs> to stop them from coming in. After that, every Tuesday night was sold out. Every week. They'd never experienced anything like that? No, never seen anything like that. Not on ice hockey. <laughs> that was a great success. You were saying that, I guess, you didn't have a home, that the team didn't have a home. So what did you do? How did you give the Bombers a home? Well, it has to do with situations in Sydney. The Glaciarium closed because that was a subsidiary of the Sydney Cold Stores and they didn't do any more cold storage. People had their own uh, cool rooms in the shops. No more Sydney Cold Stores. So then we had to temporarily go up in Prince Albert Park. In the heart of sunny Surrey Hills, it's not the first place you'd picture ice hockey. And it was an image that even turned heads overseas. Where we played ice hockey on Sunday mornings. It was also limited ice time. And at one particular time, some journalists from the Toronto Telegraph were in Sydney and they struck the scene that they said, look, they're playing ice hockey under the palm trees. And he took some photos and it made the front page in Canada. But playing in the park was only a temporary fix. But because that's a public park, you can't have a permanent business there. So after a while, that closed too. And before that closed, there was another small ice rink in Narrabeen, and that went bankrupt. And then Prince Alfred Park closed, and I got tea for getting out of ice. So I bought a little rink in Narrabeen, and we played from the little rink, and still became champions of New South Wales. And then we built a big rink behind us. The rink in Narrabeen backed onto a Catholic convent, with a bit of persuasion, Dickie managed to lease some of the land and upgrade. And you built this this rink. Yeah, like when you say you built this, you're, stretch, yeah. you're not talking about getting in some builders to, to come in and do the work. No, no, we did it all ourselves. We hired a licensed plumber. We hired a licensed electrician to do everything. And we hired a couple of bricklayers, but we made them out just to put the boys to put a thousand bricks a day. And, uh, you know, we, we we get the proper tradesmen. You put the sons to work, though. We did all the most of it ourselves. Wow. The rink became a local icon, attracting huge crowds as the Warringah Bombers won state championship after state championship. But Dickie wasn't done there. And the Narrabeen rink wasn't the only rink you built? No, no, we built, uh, my partner and I, we built six rinks altogether. Constructing rinks from Narrabeen to Newcastle and Blacktown, Adelaide to Ashmore, and even across the ditch in Christchurch. Build it and they will come. That was Dickie's belief create top quality facilities that would encourage juniors to try their hand at ice hockey and eventually develop homegrown Australian players that could compete on the world stage. But trying to create a culture around a winter sport was always going to be an uphill battle. You look at the game here in Australia now, it probably wouldn't be the same without some of those early steps that you took 60, 70 years ago. I mean, can you believe how far ice hockey's come? Well, it has come not far enough to my liking, but it has come a long way. Yeah. 
because it, it, you can say it started from scratch. But the funny part is, the Ice Hockey Association New South Wales exists since 1912. 1908, the glacier opened, but it never progressed, because it's, it's anti-climate, it's too hot outside, and people lay on the beach in the bikinis. And you were uh, inducted into the Hall of Fame for your efforts? Yeah, as I said, we built six ice rings all together here, uh, one in New Zealand. And uh, yeah, they inducted me on the builder site for the ice rings. Away from hockey, Dickie still had to make a living to support his young family. The great thing is, you come to Australia, I drove my car on uh, Botany Road, where all the factories are, machinists wanted, that wanted. I had three jobs in two weeks. I was very happy on the taxis because simple business, straightforward, essential, you need it every day. So, and cash, no problem. And you could determine your own hours. But my wife was working, managing a restaurant in, uh, in Sydney. And she was very good at it. And she said, look, I don't like that taxi life at all because you're always way late. Yes, well, the money is there at night, but there's no public transport. People are screaming for taxis and it's no traffic. It goes quick. I said, no, I like it. She said, yeah, but I don't like it. So we talked it over. said, what do you want me to do? We have a few dollars now. We've got to start a business. She said, well, let's start a restaurant. He said, man, I can't even boil an egg. How do we, no, we take a chef for that, and I can arrange this, and I can arrange that. Okay, but well, we were looking around, and we purchased a, a restaurant. Then we had a proper chef, of course, we bought it. And from there on, we took a much bigger restaurant. A few years later, we moved up. It was very successful. But in the process, there were a few hurdles. You may have wondered why David Gruntman goes by Dickie Mann today. When we started the second restaurant, we needed a liquor licence. For the liquor license, you have to have, at that time, British citizenship. So we had a lawyer for, to fix all the paperwork, the leases of the building and this and that, and also applied for liquor license. And I came to the solicitor one day, it was about two, three weeks before the court case, and I said, is everything in order? He said, well, actually, no. Is that what you mean? He said, well, I've got all the licenses, but they're really all in a different name. I said, what? Yeah, they can't spell that name. He said, so what can I do? He said, what I suggest, I would chop half the name off and just take the last three letters. Man, he said, everybody can understand that. And see, I do that. So he arranged my naturalization. And after naturalization, I got the name changed by Deepol and became Australian or British subject. And that way we went to the court and got our liquor license. And you started the restaurant. Then we started the restaurant, yes. Very good. The name of that restaurant? The Flying Dutchman. From driving cabs to running his own business and literally building an ice hockey legacy across this country with his own hands, the husband and father would also raise a family. Ronald, Elliot and David, who'd call Australia home, with every passing summer spent on the beaches of Bondi with his three boys, the chilling chapters of his life back in Europe seemed further and further away. While he did his best to let those memories slowly fade, there were friendships 
he could never forget. Friends like Co Waterman, the fellow Dutchman he met when he first arrived in Auschwitz. Well, the liberation, I lost track of him and everybody else because the sergeant picked me up because he spoke English and took me straight to the American office. But what happened to Code? Well, I don't know. He, he went to the Red Cross. The Red Cross was there in the, in the day. So they looked after him and flew to Belgium and could operate in Belgium. And you've stayed in touch all of these years? He's... Oh, yes. Yeah, we, we come in Amsterdam and we both got back to Amsterdam at last. We looked each other up and we stayed away with friends for life. <laughs> The pair had helped keep each other alive through their darkest of days. After Dickie left Amsterdam for Australia, these mates would remain in touch and eventually reunite on the shores of Sydney years later. I still kept in contact with God a few other people with air letters, you know, we wrote to each other, there's no email of course. And uh, I got a letter in 56, I think it was, and uh, he said, I'm, I'm migrating to New Zealand, but I'm stopping in Sydney, you come to Sydney. He said, yeah, sure, so I wrote back, yes, that, that. Funny part is, by the time his boat gets to Sydney, there's a maritime strike in Australia. So two months, co-state is Sydney with me <laughs> and his wife, and then they went to New Zealand. We still kept in touch, and we, we visited once here, and then the, after... Maybe 12 years is why I still decided she'd rather be with the rest of the relatives in Holland. And he is someone that I guess you owe your life to, really, that advice that he gave you oh, yeah. very early days. Oh, yeah, he helped me. He, he taught me very good trade because afterward in Mauthausen they wanted tradesmen again and I went for it and I got the job and I could do it in the factory because I learned it in Sint How important were those relationships that you built in Auschwitz to your survival, do you think? Those connections that you made with different people along the way, I mean, do you think you'd still be here today if if you didn't make those those friendships? And, and Well, we had a couple of friendships, but you see, it's a very, it's hard to explain, but it's a very moving, so it's not permanent. Nothing, you can be here six weeks working hard, think you're home, and the next morning you say, oh, you're not going, you're going somewhere else. Or they put you in the gas chamber, whatever, whatever suits them. Well, let's fast forward a fair few years. So it's 2019, and it's the 75th anniversary of, of your time in Auschwitz. You decide to go back. Oh, yeah. We got invited to come back. There's an organization in the world, and they are ex-prisoners, I can call them. And anyway, the big organization, and they said in 75 years, there's, there's not going to be many lives left. So they offered us, the survivors, uh, a trip with a guardian. So because one of them can't travel alone anymore. And that was very successful. I thought it was marvelous done the way it did. What was it like going back? Well, it becomes a bit routine because I've been a few times already disturbing, if you see this. What are we doing? What's this world all about? If you can kill innocent people like children and, and, and old people for nothing. Killing, killing, killing all day, every day. 
And 75 years on, going back and going back with your son. Yeah. Did it, did it sort of bring a lot of those memories back quite vividly? Well, yes. We walked in the gas chamber where my father got gassed. Things like that are very, very traumatic. And but you don't change the fact, fact of life is there. The monuments are there. Like Auschwitz is a monument now. Cannot be touched. But uh, the, it stays in the back of your head always. Always there. Dickie had made the journey with his youngest son, David. And as the pair sat on that tour bus, retracing an unsettling but integral part of their family's history, a 97-year-old Dickie would make a new friend with a very familiar backstory. We were all in the camp for a tour, <clears throat> uh, and they take us from Krakow to Auschwitz in a, in a bus. So we're sitting in the bus on the way home, and the bus has three seats on one side, a path, and another three seats on the other side. So my son sits on the seat on, on the path, and across the path is a gentleman sitting, and he speaks loudly, is there, is there anybody in the bus from Holland? And then my son said, he said, yes, my father is born in Holland. Where? Where? And he points to me. And then he said, uh, are you from Holland? Yeah. What city? I said, oh, Amsterdam. Oh, amazing. I'm too. And then David said at that time, he said, get up and sit here and I'll take your seat so you can talk to the gentleman. And it turns out the gentleman is born about 15 meters from where I was born. We lived opposite each other in the street in Amsterdam. So he was flabbergasted that that was happening. Did you remember him from, from, from a No, a, a don't, he went to another school because we had two schools in the street and now he went to one and I went to the other one. But I know neighbors, I even knew his neighbor and everything. And, he, and it was so amazing. He was astonished that it could happen. Anyway, we then had invited us at night for dinner and he was with his daughter. His daughter was accompanying him, like David was accompanying me. And then we talked, 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 and then he went back to America, and I went back to Australia, and then we zoomed here. Several times we had a meeting with him and his daughter, and fortunately he passed away last month. Yeah. He was also 93, of course. And what was his name? Max Garcia. Yeah, it's a Portuguese name. So born 15 metres apart, living on opposite sides of the world, and your paths only cross when you... But that happens because, like you live in Europe in those apartments, you know, there's so many people living you don't know more. So he was a survivor as well? Yeah. He went to Auschwitz as well? Went to Auschwitz and other camps and also worked for the Americans, same as artists. Wow. So you had very similar stories. Very similar stories. That must have been pretty special to meet someone who Yeah, been... it was very He's a very nice man, beautiful man, but... Unfortunately, it didn't last, otherwise we could have visited, but we had a few Zoom meetings on the computer. It was, yeah, very, couldn't believe it. Keep your nose to the grindstone, he said. It's very, very dangerous here. It was that trip back to Auschwitz in January 2020 that would lead to our paths crossing. An old journo colleague and mate of mine from Seven News, Sarah Greenolch, had met Dickie and his son Dave while covering the 75th anniversary of the liberation. It's a hell on earth. 
This was the first time Dickie had shared some of his story with an Australian audience. The opposite of love is not hate, it's indifferent. And of course people are easy and indifferent. But what Dickie didn't share at the time was that he may not have had long left. He was diagnosed with colon cancer in 2005, aged 82. His first surgery that year was a success, but 14 years later, in 2019, the cancer returned. He held off on surgery again for six weeks so that he could make that trip back to Europe for the anniversary. He wasn't well. Dickie was losing blood, but hid it from everyone. As soon as he returned to Australia in February, Dickie went straight into surgery at 97 years old. Again, it appeared to be a success, but four days later, he was in excruciating pain and was rushed in for a second emergency surgery to repair what had gone wrong. It took Dickie six weeks to recover in hospital before he was able to walk out on his own two feet. And then... Just two months later came the news his family had feared. His cancer marker tests returned a heightened level of activity. With all treatment options exhausted, doctors gave Dickie three to six months to live. Fearing time was running out and desperate to immortalise his father's legacy, Dave contacted Sarah in London to see if she knew anyone in Australia who could capture Dickie's story. A story that for so long had gone untold. Have you talked about it much over these years? No, I never talked the first 30 years I've never mentioned. Why is that? Maybe it brings bad memories up in the first place, but it depresses you too. There's enough bad memories. Don't want to talk about it, don't want to bring it up and so forth. So your kids, you never really talk to them about it? Well, if they're interested, they ask and I give honest answer. But it's not the number one item on the menu. You know, their schools, their upbringing, everything is more important than what happens. It happened and it happened and you're never going to change it. I mean, what has astounded me from this whole experience is that now, I lived on the Gold Coast for a few years and I would have never known that there was someone just up the road who had been through what you've been through. And I yeah, think... Yeah. No, there's not that many left of us now. There's not many left. Why do you think it is important to share your story? Well, if I can convince one person that he shouldn't, advertise war or participate war or organize war or anything like this, then it's worth it. If it all comes back, militarization, money, greed, false glory, there's no glory in getting, getting killing 10 people and get a medal for it. Horrible. And now, today, after all of the struggles that you've been through, you're facing another fight, and you've been facing it for a few years, cancer. Yeah, that's another thing. Well, that's a thing you have no say over. That's in somebody else's hands. 
But uh, again, you've got to find it as best you can. You go to the experts, you go to the doctors, you go to the best doctors, you say, what can I do, what is this, what that, this. Who knows? I had a fair innings at 98, so any moment it's finished, it's finished. We all have to finish one day. But you don't want to speed it up unnecessarily. But whether it's cancer or something else, you all have to die of something. Mm. It's probably one of the easier fights you've had. Yeah, I'll take your diet and living healthy, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. Mm. But you can't sit whinging about it because it won't change the fact that you make yourself unhappy. To be able to then celebrate well, you with celebrate all your family. life. You celebrate life because it's very precious. You now have grandkids. I mean, to be able to have your story captured and when they're ready, have this for them to, to look back on. Mm-hmm. I know you, you, you've said it several times throughout our chat, but is that the key message that you want to get across to them, that peace is what's needed? The not whole, yeah, well, look. Without peace, you got nothing. Without health, you got nothing. What do you owe your health to? I mean, <laughs> your, your your mind is still sharp. You've remembered dates better than yeah. anyone I've ever met. Well, I I'm not not a genius, but I realise whatever you have or wherever you are, you need maintenance. And if you abuse your body. Smoking, drinking, and so forth, and so forth. Now, mind you, a hundred years ago, we didn't know it was bad not to smoke. We didn't know. There's so many things. Like a hundred years ago, people only got to 45 years. Now they get double. So if you don't know, you don't know. But nowadays, for a person to smoke or to drink, suicidal. So yeah. healthy eating is very important because this is the machine you've got to keep going for a long time. So make sure you feed it the right stuff. Very important. Peace, not war. Health, not money. Simple life lessons we could all learn a lot from. And Dickie is living proof of their power. At the time of recording this episode, it's been 18 months since that terminal diagnosis. His latest tests revealing his cancer markers have significantly dropped. To the surprise of his surgeon, who said it was nothing less than incredible to see him so well and strong. But if you've been listening since the beginning, this really shouldn't come as a surprise. The Flying Dutchman always has and still remains the master of his own destiny. And that is where we will leave Dickie's story for now. Well, thank you very much. You're most welcome. <laughs> Thanks for taking the time today and That's yeah, no, sharing. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Flying Dutchman podcast. Before you go, Dickie and I have a big favour to ask. As you've heard, David Dickie Grundman has a remarkable life story 
that has captivated humans across the world. This entirely self-funded project has been downloaded more than 30,000 times by people from more than 35 countries. Since the podcast launched, there have been resounding calls from listeners for this series to be turned into a documentary. Now, with your help, we plan to make it happen. At almost 100 years old, Dickie will be making his final journey back to Amsterdam, the city where he was born, to celebrate this milestone birthday in June. But this is about more than just a celebration. It's about capturing the story of a survivor and sharing his wisdom with the world. To donate to our cause, head to storiestold.com.au or follow the link in our show notes.